Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. I've seen plans that my clients have had developed where there's no definition of a crisis. So if things start to go pear-shaped, no one would be in a position to definitively even say, you know, is this or is this not a crisis? Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. So today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Ingrid Svensson about communicating in a crisis. Ingrid is the co-founder and chair of the East Timor Hearts Fund, and she's also the past president of the Darabin Parklands Association. Her first board was the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance Victorian Branch Councillor. Ingrid is a crisis communication professional who has specialised in the age, disability and health sectors for around 10 years. She's the co-owner of Grounded Communications and an AICD-trained non-executive director. She has an adult son and lives in Melbourne with her partner and two chickens. And if I could also add, she's got two awesome sisters, one of whom is behind the microphone today. So I know Ingrid is going to share a whole lot of wisdom with us today about crisis communications and how we can handle things, whether it's a pandemic or not. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Ingrid. Thank you, Helia. Lovely to be here. Does feel slightly unusual having my sister on the podcast. If that wasn't entirely clear from the uh, from the introduction for others, Ingrid is my sister, but she also knows awesome amounts about these things. So I thought, well, why wouldn't I have her on the show? So Ingrid, as you know, I normally start the podcast by exploring a bit more about the person. And for you, uh, <laughs> even though I know some of this, tell me about your upbringing. What lessons did you learn? What did you get up to? And what were the leading influences on how you thought and what you did? Yeah, well, look, I think like a lot of people, probably um, leading influences were my parents and probably one of the earliest influences I had in terms of you know learning the lesson that um, community action is important and that you can advocate to change where you find something's not right. Probably the earliest lesson I learned was when I started in prep and there was an overcrowded school, old-fashioned old schoolroom with 70 prep children in it and there was, um, you know, quite a riot amongst the parents and my parents were part of those parents who were leading the call for change there to um, get something done about those class sizes 
by banding together with the Parents Association and writing directly to the minister. I've still got copies of these hilarious old-fashioned letters written by my dad to try and get something done about that, and they were successful. Ultimately, a, a brand-new school was built, which we all went to. Obviously, we share the parents, and it's certainly been one of the influences on my life is the act- community activism and making a difference, uh, I think, was probably drummed into us from very small children. Yeah, absolutely. Our parents were involved in, you know, everything, the, the town fair, the Progress Association, they set up a food co-op or were part of a food co-op very ahead of their time. They even set up a, a learning co-op, which was a random school staffed by people who weren't teachers, so it was quite an interesting experiment. But, you know, they were involved in the community and they supported the community and that was certainly what we, what we were instilled with as children. And we can see that in what you've been involved in as well, whether it's Darabin Parklands Association or now the East Timor Heart Foundation that you co-founded and are now the chair of, which leads us to part of what you do now, this crisis communications, and it's often in the health industry or the aged care industry. And obviously, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Just to be clear, we are recording this on Friday, the 3rd of April, even though it'll probably go to air in a few weeks' time. And obviously, this pandemic is moving swiftly. So if there's anything we refer to around the pandemic itself, just be aware that it was recorded on the 3rd of April. So Ingrid, lots of organisations are now thinking about how to best communicate, given they are now, unexpectedly for many of them, in the middle of a crisis. So whilst this is a pandemic, I'm sure some of the way organisations should communicate in a crisis is the same no matter what. So where should we start? What are the things that boards should be thinking about in terms of crisis communications? Well, one important disclaimer just before I launch into it is that um, at Grounded Communications, you know, we take the confidentiality of the client work we do extremely seriously, so I don't talk about the work that we do in any specific detail, but for the purposes of this, very happy to talk about, you know, de-identified type cases and some of the case studies with a no-name basis that we've been involved in. So, yeah, look, as you point out, it, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a, a pandemic, whether it's a natural disaster, you know, what it is, the principles of communicating in a crisis are exactly the same. The actions that the board need to take well ahead of a crisis are exactly the same. So I would definitely say that, you know, in the middle of a crisis is not the best time to start contemplating, do we have a crisis communications plan? That's work that should be done and questions that should be asked well ahead of whatever it is, the earthquake or the flood or the bushfire or the pandemic striking. So for boards, I would say there are a few key things that the boards can do. This is to, you know, make sure that you do have some sort of a strategy in place. And perhaps if you're, you know, like some of the organisations I deal with, the smaller NGOs, perhaps you you don't have the capacity to, to bring in the expertise to develop a crisis communications plan, but at least have the discussion and make sure that um, people understand what a crisis could be and generally what sort of response you would launch into should that happen. So, yeah, make sure you have a strategy or a crisis communications plan. Make sure it's, you know, fit for purpose and has been tested ideally. So I could give you a few examples of plans that I've seen that clients have had done where they sometimes spent a lot of money getting a plan developed that unfortunately really gives them a false sense of security. I've seen plans that my clients have had developed where there's no definition of a crisis. So if things start to go pear-shaped, no one would be in a position to definitively even say, you know, is this or is this not a crisis? 
I've seen so-called crisis communications plans that only focus on media. So they're obsessed with media risk, but have nothing of substance in them to do with stakeholders, which are often the, the key issues. I've seen crisis communications plan where randomly the chair of the board is up there on the crisis communications response team, which is completely inappropriate from the governance point of view. So, yeah, so if you do have a plan, just make sure it's been developed with someone who has the appropriate expertise to do that work and ideally make sure it's tested on a regular basis so with some practical scenario-based work. I would also say that the clear roles and responsibilities are very important. So the board needs to know when to step in and when to step back. It's certainly not the board's role to be sitting on that crisis communications response team. The CEO will brief up to the board if necessary. In most circumstances, it's not the board's role to plan the operational response, but it is the board's role to oversee risk. That's an absolutely fundamental responsibility of the board. So it's the board's role to, to make sure that um, the overall approach is, is sound, to ensure that there are systems in place to deal with uh, operational risks so that, you know, ideally these things don't happen in the first place. And in some limited circumstances, the board may have to front the issue. It's uncommon, but it, it does happen. I can talk about some of those examples in a bit further detail if you like. I want to hook back on a couple of things there. So you've talked about a strategy and having, you know, some of the sorts of things that should be in there. And obviously bringing in some sort of crisis communications professional to help with that or somebody internally who might be able to do that. What are the sorts of headings that should be in that crisis communications plan? What should it look like? They can differ according to the size and complexity of the organisations. So larger organisations, you know, would have something that's a lot more extensive. Smaller organisations might have something that's, you know, fairly brief. A definition of what a crisis is and some trigger points. So, you know, infectious disease is not necessarily a crisis, but if you've got X number of cases in X number of the facilities that you run, that's the trigger for saying, yes, that could be a communications crisis. So definition and some trigger points. Ideally, you should have uh, stakeholders, your crisis stakeholders listed, so you can sort of hit the ground running there. The crisis communications response team should be set out. So who sits on that, both your internal expertise and your external expertise. So um, typically the CEO of the organisation would share that or their delegate. You would have your other senior executives as relevant um, and you might bring in um, other sort of subject specialists as relevant. So if you're dealing with a, a major data breach, you bring in your, you know, your head of IT or if you were dealing with a major financial issue, you bring in perhaps your auditors or your head of finance. So they will also set out the external expertise that needs to be on that crisis communications response group. So that could be your lawyers, as I say, your auditors, could be external communications support, which is often really helpful just to have someone who's a little bit stepped back from it. I think that the best crisis communications plans are extremely practical and what they aim to do is resource you to hit the ground running very quickly in a crisis. So they will have resources in there like, as I say, the stakeholder analysis so you can know who you need to speak to. They will have resources in there such as template responses so that you know what you need to say in a crisis. And if, if you can, they, they will be staged. So you might have your initial type responses and then your more, your more full and frank responses. 
you will have set out in their spokespeople. Those are a few of the components, um, definitions, so you know what a crisis is, triggers so you know when it is, stakeholders so you know who you have to speak to, and your responses so you've got at least some sort of um, ability to hit the ground running in, in, in terms of what you're going to say. Fantastic. Thank you. That is so useful for people. You'd also mentioned about testing it. How do you do that? How do you test a crisis communications plan? Well, we do, for example, and and different people do different things, but we, for example, do scenario-based testing with our clients. So we'll we'll haul out the plan, we'll put a few real-life scenarios, we'll get people to, uh, to go through using the crisis communications plan. They'll need to decide, is this a crisis? So who do we need on our crisis team? What will we be saying in response? What will we be doing in response? What are the tactics that we need to be um, engaging in in response to this? So we will we'll haul it out and we'll test it. And through that process, we will find if there are any weaknesses if we've got the entire executive team saying, well, I think this is. No, I don't think it is a crisis. We, we've highlighted there that, you know, it's not clear enough what the definition is. So we do it that way. Other people do much more extensive, you know, days-long testing where they will do a real-time or a semi-real-time type scenario with an unfolding set of circumstances that people are responding to. You know, that can be really useful too for your bigger organisations for sure. Really just depends. Even just to haul that plan out once a year and look through it and just make sure that all of the, the contacts are in there. Maybe your lawyer's gone out of business and you've got a redundant lawyer listed in there you know that sort of thing there are some other uh, preparedness things that people can do also media training can be really useful for your ceo typically and a a deputy so you've got someone in the back pocket should you need them or for your content experts such as you know in this pandemic type scenario your chief medical officer of your organization if you've got one or your chief clinical officer or whoever or the other topic experts or support you know deputies that that might need to speak in a crisis hello it's helia are you tuning into this podcast because you want to get on a board but you're not sure where to start it's the same for many of us or indeed all of us before we get our first board role so if that's you or if you know someone who fits the description i have some exciting news The next Board Kickstarter program, which is my program that helps women figure out all they need to know about getting their first board role, is coming up in June 2020. Super early bird rates apply from now until the end of April. And here's an extra special deal for the Take On Board community. If you register for Board Kickstarter, email me and let me know your favourite Take On Board episode. And then you'll also get a free one-on-one strategy session with me either before or after the program starts. Go on. It's a fabulous group of women. And because we're running it via Zoom, there's strictly limited numbers, but it also means you can participate from wherever you are in the world. There's a link to book uh, and to get in touch with me in the show notes. I'd love to welcome you to the group. Now, back to the show. You'd referred before about that roles and responsibilities, and I think it's particularly important, I guess, for boards to think about that. As you'd said, what is the role of the board? What is the role of the organisation? And you said you had some examples for us. Can you take us through some examples that might help boards to think about roles and responsibilities and what's useful for them to think about there? 
risk's obviously a key responsibility of the board. So it's the board's role to be sure that a proper system is in place to respond to a crisis should it occur. But it's not always the board's role to front an issue. I find that there are probably two responses amongst, I commonly deal with CEOs as a crisis communications practitioner, but I find there are a couple of responses from chairs of the board. They either want to be all over the issue or they want to run a mile. And in different situations, neither of those is is appropriate always. But sometimes it is appropriate for the chair to front the issue. For example, if it's a major governance issue that we're dealing with, if it's an issue where, you know, there simply is no CEO because the CEO is perhaps at the centre of some sort of misconduct and the chair has had to step in where it's an issue that goes, you know, strongly to the values of the organisation or where it's an issue where it's a major strategic decision of the organisation that that is at the centre of the issue and you simply want to uh, show that sort of unity of organisation. If you think back to about 10 years ago when David Jones, the department store, had its major crisis, so David Jones... It's um, a large number of its staff are young women, positions itself strongly as, you know, fashion for young women. But its CEO, it was revealed, had been serially sexually harassing young women subordinate employees. So in that situation, the chair of the board and the board has to take a strong role. The CEO's gone (laughs) and the organisation has to explain this horrendous failure of culture and values. Is there any other examples that would be helpful uh, in thinking about roles and responsibilities for boards? I've got a a favourite, and this is a bit weird. People might think it's a bit morbid, but I actually keep the obituary of this chair of the board amongst my files. It sits on my desk and I refer to it quite often. This goes back to 1982 when Johnson & Johnson had the Tylenol poisoning issue and it's been described as the perfect crisis communications response and for good reason the chairman of the company James Burke was the person who was in charge of that in deciding what to how to respond to that issue where cyanide laced capsules of Tylenol painkiller had been placed on shelves and a number of people including children had died company chairman James Burke didn't go to share price or anything like that he considered that the organisation had a moral responsibility and he went back to the founding creed of the organisation, which was to serve society beyond sales and profit. So he launched a very strong response that was based really around protecting people first and foremost and saving the product and protecting the company's reputation. So I'd really encourage people to just Google that and have a look at some of those examples. But there was a swift and really solid operational response you know production halted the product withdrawn really quickly new tamper proof packaging launched but an amazing comms response when you think that this was 1982 so this is the era of the telex machine probably prefax i'm not sure but um some very sophisticated techniques such as a free call number for consumers, which is, you know, standard stuff, but a, a free call number for media, so you can get the robo quotes and updates, which was pretty, you know, cutting edge for its time. They reportedly set up a live satellite feed to get the message out. He did an absolute media blitz. He did 60 minutes and Phil Donahue, taking yourself back, media conferences from the company's headquarters so there was no kind of hiding and it was all just great messaging, you know, very contrite, very action-oriented as to what they were doing. The company reportedly even offered financial assistance and counselling to the victims, you know, and even though they weren't at fault, they were a victim themselves. So it's not for any 
bad reason that that response is seen as a showpiece in how to respond to a crisis. So I look to that often as, a, as an example of a, a board chair showing incredible leadership in a crisis. And it just shows how important that, I don't know, having a values-based response to these things. It, it's not all about quelling the potential legal action or making the things go away, but actually just about having the right response to it. And again, for boards in thinking about this, what is the role of values and ethics in establishing these plans and having a response? There's really no point talking about how your greatest concern is for your employees and having and your customers and having these fancy statements on your website if they mean nothing when things hit the fan. So it ought to be the absolute cornerstone of all of your communications, but particularly in a crisis, that's when people really see what you're made of. So if you say you care about the customer first and foremost and that your staff are the most important thing to you, well, during a crisis, that's the time to show it. So we've talked about Tylenol and how that was a really fabulous response by the board and a very genuine and and values-based kind of response. Have you got any examples on the other side where they've got it wrong? So, yes, at Dreamworld in October 2016, four people died horrifically, you know, and kind of some of their own children went over ride malfunctioned at Dreamworld. Um, and we saw the response delivered by both the CEO of the parent company, Ardent Leisure, and the chair of the board. And in some ways, that's fine. That's it. That's good that the board and the CEO are showing that unity and accountability in a time of crisis. That's fine. But you can just see that that example is just littered with examples of board failure right from the start in the board's failure to oversee risk and ensure that there were proper safety systems in place, but also in the delivery of that crisis communications response. So only a couple of days after the horrific tragedy, the board decided that it must go ahead with the AGM. They said they had a statutory obligation, but, you know, surely you could have opened that meeting and then just immediately closed it or, you know, voted to defer it and closed it. At the AGM, they failed to defer awarding the CEO's bonus and and then only belatedly and after outcry decided to, you know, try and donate it to the Red Cross. The board failed to make sound decisions over the reopening timeframe, so the theme park was still a crime scene and the victims had not even buried their loved ones when three days later they decided they were going to reopen the theme park as a tribute. And, of course, you know, as I say, there was just those foundational issues of the board's failure to oversee risk and ensure that proper safety regimes were in place, such as, you know, training and maintenance and all of those things. In February 2020, in fact, the coroner handed down findings on that case and the coroner, you know, just noted that, you know, the rudimentary safety systems, the frighteningly unsophisticated safety, the poor record keeping and um, something that, you know, every board director should probably note that the coroner um, stated that such a culpable culture can exist only when leadership from the board down are careless in respect of safety. That cannot be allowed. And the coroner has now um, referred that matter for potential criminal prosecution. So that's something that every board director should take note of. During the Dreamworld case, the evidence was um, led about the multiple breakdowns of this machine over multiple years. So that's something that the board certainly could have known about. It's something that certainly could have come before the board in in regular reporting, the fact that... um, 
that this machine had a history of, of failure and that the, you know, the maintenance systems just were in place. It's an incredibly sobering example of when organisations don't get it right and boards don't get it right, what the impact of that can be. I know your organisation, you've dealt with some of the faith-based organisations and in particularly in their consideration, I guess, or contemplation around joining the redress scheme. Is there any examples from that that might kind of showcase the, the values of an organisation coming through in this crisis comms environment? Yeah, definitely. We dealt with one some years ago. Yes, this was a faith-based organisation in the sort of social services sector, I guess you'd say. The organisation had been approached by a couple of people who had said that they had experienced abuse in orphanages that were owned by predecessor organisations to this organisation. Those predecessor organisations that ran these orphanages didn't even exist anymore. But um, this faith-based organisation decided that in keeping with its organisational values that it was going to take responsibility for it. So it launched a, a major redress scheme to offer support to those, those victims and it launched a huge communications campaign to identify further people that might have been affected and to get them to come forward to receive support and assistance also. I guess some people could have seen that as potentially harming the organisation's reputation, but it was very much lauded in the end for that response within its community. So I think it was um, a great example of an organisation acting in a way that's consistent with values and ultimately coming out the stronger for it. And I guess in thinking about it, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've got emails from every single organisation I've ever subscribed to recently giving me their COVID-19 response. And even though some of those organisations aren't in crisis, they are still communicating in a crisis. So, you know, just yesterday I had an email from an organisation lifting their prices on something with no explanation around what they were doing and no kind of acknowledgement that they were doing this in the middle of a pandemic. And when I responded to them and asked, you know, if they might not be able to hold off on this for six months given we're in a global recession, it was, was kind of brushed off around that. So I think it's also interesting for organisations not just to think about communicating the crisis itself, but how they do all of their communications in a crisis. Have you got any advice for organisations in that regard about what they should be thinking about? That's um, really interesting you say that because I had a discussion with a not-for-profit just this week that was very um, resolute that it did not want to do any communication on the, the COVID crisis, even though it was having a, a major impact on the organisation's operations. This organisation was quite firm that it wanted to say nothing and just launch into its regular fundraising campaign as usual, which is completely the wrong response. People aren't silly and they know it's going to have an impact and they'll be quite forgiving if you're honest with them and tell them what's going on, but they won't be forgiving if you're deceptive and tricky, which is what people would perceive that to be if an organisation launches into a fundraising campaign at the same time as it's had to pull a number of its operations because of COVID. So I would um, say, you know, to just be honest and upfront and ultimately you will benefit from that as an organisation. Yeah, yeah. That's what I tried to communicate back to this organisation, but uh, it's fair to say that back and forth hasn't been too fruitful on that one. I might need to send them your way. Ingrid, we've covered an enormous amount today about communicating in a crisis, which again is a key thing for boards to think about. 
What are the main points you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Look, I'd definitely say to people, you know, don't be paralysed by fear or by false confidence. As a board member, you have a responsibility to act and it's never too late to start looking at your crisis communications preparedness. So you have a a clear duty to to ask a few key questions about your state of preparedness, um, whether you're a big organisation or a small organisation. So some of the things you can do is um, perhaps ask the CEO to provide a briefing at your next board meeting on your crisis communications plan. And when the CEO does that, you know, ask some questions. Who developed it? What's their expertise? When was it last updated? Have key people received training in how to use that plan? And take a look, ask some questions too, potentially about some of the other preparedness that's in place. Has the CEO received media training recently? Do you have systems in place for logging and being on communications and reputational issues? And if the answer is no or none or not lately, can't really remember to any of those questions, I think that's a red flag for you as a director and that's your notification that you should be doing something on that in terms of giving some direction to the CEO to remedy those sorts of things. In the board deciding, or not deciding, in the board having those conversations around their role and the role of the organisation in the crisis or in the crisis communications plan, what's your advice to boards in that? What's the key thing they should be thinking about, about whether it's in their bailiwick or not? In terms of preparedness, it's clearly the board's role. Risk is one of the most fundamental responsibilities of the board director, so making sure that there's adequate crisis communications preparedness measures in place is clearly your responsibility as a board director. In terms of crisis communications response, it really depends on the nature of the issue and what you're dealing with. Uh, There are, if you're dealing with a major governance issue, if you're dealing with an issue that involves the CEO themselves, if you're dealing with an issue that goes to the culture of the organisation, if you're dealing with an issue that goes to a major strategic decision of the organisation, those are things where there may be either joint or singular role for the board and the chair of the board to be involved in the planning and the delivery of crisis communications. But otherwise, I would say butt out. It's the CEO's role to manage operational issues such as that and brief up if necessary. And sometimes there simply isn't any time. So you've delegated management of the organisation to the CEO, so let them do their thing and they will let you know, uh, you know, if and what is needed in terms of the response. Thank you for joining us today, Ingrid. It's been incredibly useful, I think, to hear some of those tips about what the board should and shouldn't be thinking about in a crisis, whether it's the current global pandemic or something else. So thank you so much for joining me on the Take On Board podcast today. That's been a pleasure. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook.
Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.